Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Last week, upon the death of Fox News founder Roger Ailes, tens of thousands of words were written about the impact that Ailes and Fox had on our politics. Much of it talked about giving voice to a particular kind of conservatism, to understanding the resentment and anger in the country, and to mining that populism that has now emerged full-blown. Journalists, pundits, professors, and consultants all chimed in. The problem is that very little of it is true. Sure, Ailes understood television and politics, but at core, what he did was to take the world of talk radio, a world that has been evolving since Father Coughlin and Amy Semple McPherson in the 1920s, and given a whole new life for a whole host of reasons in the 70s and 80s, and combined it with a bit of blondification and transferred it to television. To put it bluntly, he simply exploited the rise and power of conservative talk radio. The Economist said recently during the political campaign that to understand politics today, get in a car, turn on the radio, and drive. Talk radio is far more than the viewers that watch even the top-rated Fox News show each night. It's the lens through which millions and millions of its listeners view the world. Guy Gigliotta, a former reporter for the Washington Post, once said of radio that perhaps no invention of modern times has delivered so much while initially promising so little. To talk about this today, I'm joined by Michael Harrison. He is the founder, editor, and publisher of Talkers Magazine and Talkers.com. He is the go-to authority on talk radio. And it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Harrison to the program. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for that very nice introduction. And uh, what an interesting um, opening to this conversation. I I like that word, blondification. Uh, (laughs) Is that what I thought it means? Exactly what you thought it means. The the whole world is a stage. It's all show business. And Roger Ailes understood that, obviously. You bring up a very provocative point. Um, And I I found it interesting also in your opening statement that uh, you trace the roots of talk radio all the way back to Father Coughlin. Um, that's, uh, I've been in a number of debates about that subject, uh, and I've, I've been on different sides of the debate because over the years I've had different feelings about that. I would prefer to trace the roots of modern talk radio to the fairness doctrine being repealed in the late 80s and the rise of people like Rush Limbaugh. I, I think Father Coughlin might give a bad impression on the nature of talk radio. And I gather that you see the conservative movement as being a little more ominous than maybe I do. But, but let's let's talk. But but even beyond the modern era of talk radio, even before the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine and, and Rush Limbaugh, there was still a great deal of talk radio that was happening with, with people like Barry Gray and Barry Farber, Larry King in the early days. And, you know, in Los Angeles, people like Joe Pine and Mort Downey, there, were, there was a lot going on in talk radio, even before Rush and before the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. That is true. And um, uh, these were conservatives, and and some of them were over the top. Um, Some of them were combative, and some of them were sensational. And and you make a very good point. It should also be pointed out, though, that back in the 60s and the 70s, there were people like Michael Jackson in Los Angeles and Jerry Williams in um, Boston and um, Long John Neville in New York. And in some cases, uh, they had liberal points of view. And in some cases, they talked about things that weren't even political. Uh, You had Bill Balance talking about sex. Um, there, there, There is a whole rich 
sub-history to talk radio that was just before what I call the modern era. And the 60s and the 70s were very rich in that regard, for crying out loud. I did a show for 10 years in Los Angeles between 1975 and 1985 on the weekends on a rock station talking issues to the much younger post-war baby boomers. And um, I never thought of it as being left-right politics. I thought of it as being... um, us against the establishment. <laughs> well, it, it was very anti-establishment. It wasn't political. I mean, even if you look at guys that were combative, as we were talking about before, whether it was the early days of Bob Grant or people like Alan Burke, who was certainly as combative as you can get, or, or a <laughs> lot of these guys, it wasn't political, but it still was very combative, very anti-establishment. Yeah, it was it was conservative social. It was it was um, it, it was more of the social side of conservatism than the wonky political side. And as a result, it was very entertaining. But without straying from your point, you make one very very provocative point upon which we both absolutely agree, and that is Roger Ailes was not the beginning of the conservative movement as it has been portrayed in the media, as it has been reflected and carried in the media in the modern era. The talk show hosts post-Fairness Doctrine were the ones that really generated that message. And when Roger Ailes came along in the mid to to late 90s and, and finally created Fox News Channel, he borrowed talent, concepts, philosophies, talking points, audience, callers, the whole style that had already been entrenched, fully developed on talk radio across America. And uh, I find myself cringing a little bit when I would read accounts or hear accounts that Roger Ailes is the father of modern conservative talk media, because it is not true. Right. I mean, I'm reminded of that great line by Steve Allen, where he said, radio is theater of the mind, television is theater of the mindless. <laughs> that sounds like something Steve Allen would say. <laughs> All I could do is chuckle. Yeah, it is funny. It's remarkable when you see these stories about Ailes. Fox News premiered in 96. By that point, Rush had already been on the air, and the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine had happened 10 years before. Yeah, yeah, about, about 10 years. I, I know uh, because I remember when Fox News came around and uh, we were already well into publishing talkers for um, six, seven years. We, we started talkers in 1990. I can't believe it's been 27 years. And um, I remember when Sean Hannity was, was um, hired. Um, Sean Hannity had been tried out, I believe, on MSNBC um, before he was hired over at um, Fox. As a matter of fact, Ailes may have been part of that. As a matter of fact, Ailes was part of trying to get Rush Limbaugh on television, if you remember, for I think a couple of years there was a televised version of the Rush Limbaugh show, which really didn't go very far. But I was the first guest that Sean Hannity interviewed on on national cable television, and it wasn't Fox. It was one of the other channels. Mm -hmm. And um, they pulled him out of Atlanta, this young, very handsome, up-and-coming conservative talk show host. And uh, he wound up, of course, uh, being one of the charter hosts on the new Fox News channel, was instrumental in uh, my very dear friend, the late Alan Combs, uh, being hired to be his uh, his foil, and um, the rest, of course, is history. Right. I mean, it's one of the things people, I think, forget, 
that Sean Hannity was a star and a success on television before radio, a very rare occurrence. He was, and, and, and he has a rare talent. It's very, very difficult for somebody to master both talk radio and talk television. Limbaugh wasn't able to do it. A number of people were not able to do it. Uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger couldn't do it. Um, uh, I, I can go on the list of people. Bill O'Reilly didn't right. quite make it the other way. Uh, he, he was okay on radio, but he was far more a TV talent. Hannity seems to have an equal amount of talent for both. Yeah, I mean, he's really the exception that proves the rule in so many respects. Uh, he is he is the exception. Uh, and, and that's why he is, uh, whether you like his politics or not, Sean Hannity is a major, major star and a major, major force in what I call talk media. I, I describe it um, as talk radio, talk television, talk internet, podcasting, talk satellite, all combined now uh, as talk media. I, I dare say um, most of the people that are um, watching Fox News Channel also listen to talk radio, also uh, listen to the talk channels on Sirius. Also listen to your radio station, which is a very modern uh, platform and uh, part of the future. So I, I think it's all blending together um, in terms of this talk media diet that people are on. It's interesting to think about it, and Hannity's a good jumping-off point to start. The symbiotic relationship that existed between Fox Television and talk radio, and Regardless of the fact that so much misinformation has been out there, as we've been talking about, in terms of what Ailes actually created, there's no question that they was a re- once Fox was up and running, a real symbiotic relationship between the two. Talk a little about that. Um, yes, there was a symbiotic relationship. It was a very powerful and obvious symbiotic relationship. Um, Ailes tapped into the talent. Um, and I know, uh, because I cover this, that Ailes did this on purpose. He wanted to have people who had talk radio shows on as hosts and on as guests and on as contributors because he respected the exposure that these people had already in the um, conservative target audience. Um, so it wasn't just hosts. They, they had a tremendous number of talking heads that they would um, bring on, and many of them were people that had radio talk shows. And he did it specifically to, to tack on to their already existent audiences and to get them to promote it. See, it's a funny thing about radio people. Radio people have this, um, they're in awe of television Even if their show has more listeners than a TV station has viewers, they will drive 20 miles through a snowstorm (laughs) to get on television because they have this feeling that TV is a bigger medium. It's more prestigious. Um, I I call it uh, they suffer from screenous envy. And um, it um, is something that uh, Ailes tapped into because whenever he would put a radio person on Fox News Channel, they undoubtedly would crow about it to their listeners. I'm going to be on the TV tonight. I'm going to be on Fox News Channel. Um, If it was another radio station, their management would never let them do it. Uh, They would never talk about another radio station. But because it was television, there was something prestigious about it, and it just they got by with it. And he was very clever in doing that. So yeah, it was a symbiotic relationship. And to this day, radio talk show hosts around the country 
confide to me, and, 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 and they don't even confide. I mean, they're, they're open about it. They consider being invited regularly on Fox News Channel or CNN or CNBC or MSNBC uh, or C-SPAN. They consider that to be a, a mark of success, and they strive for that. They dream about it. They hope for it to happen. It is remarkable because, as you say, in many, many cases, the number of listeners that these hosts have, both national and some of them in individual markets, is far more than the ratings, the number of viewers that are watching Fox on a given evening. That's true. And uh, it goes back to what I said. They, they just There's something about television that seems more real. If something is on TV, it exists. Not that radio isn't real, but, but we have this fascination for the tube. We really do. Uh, television is larger than life. And, um, I mean, even, even if, you, if you go to a sporting event, there are many people that are watching the event on the big screen, not even looking at the field below. And, and I, I've been to a number of sporting events. I've been invited by corporations that have the corporate boxes where you're way up in the nosebleed section in this very nice suite, and they have food and comfort and couches. People are watching the game at the place where they are right. on the television, <laughs> not looking out at the real game. Um, ha- have you noticed at how many events that happen now, a wedding or, or some type of a local event, you'll see most of the people there are watching it on their smartphones while yep. video recording it, and they're actually watching it on a TV screen, mm-hmm. not looking directly at the bride and groom coming down the aisle, but rather looking at their TV, at their, at their smartphone. We, we have, we're wired in a funny way to be fascinated by the screen. And now, now, old-fashioned radio, which is one of the very, very few, if not the only, um, 20th century based media that's operating here in the digital age of the 21st century is screenless. It doesn't have a product for the screen. Newspapers have a product for the screen. People are reading books on the screen. People, of course, are watching all of the video from many different sources on the screen. The screen is ubiquitous to the computer. The computer is now the main means of transferring uh, communications. Radio is audio. And radio is, as you said, theater of the mind. So it deals in a, in, a, in a funny situation. You have people that are addicted to the screen, and you have this medium that when it caters to the screen, like having a, a camera in the studio or trying to come up with some type of graphics to go along with the presentation, it can go very quickly from being fabulous radio to being cheesy television. I mean, Gore Vidal, there's a great Gore Vidal quote. It's one of my favorites where he said, two things you should never turn down. Don't turn down being on TV or sex. <laughs> so what, but I, he's, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> what, one, of the, one of the questions that arises seriously to what you're saying is that radio is such an important medium in the car, as we certainly know. And one wonders mm-hmm. what's going to happen once the self-driving car is as ubiquitous as everything else. The self-driving car, Jeff, is a very interesting concept. I'm not so sure that it will be ubiquitous in, um, in a measurable amount of time. I think it's going to take a lot longer for it to become, uh, you know, the, the, the common way people um, get around. As a matter of fact, I, I think that the self-driving car will really be a new form of mass transportation. And I, I don't see it happening next year or the year after. And as far as the uh, connected dashboard, I think that already exists. Right. I think that it's called a smartphone and Bluetooth. 
So many, many people are already listening to the Internet um, or experiencing the Internet while driving simply by bringing their smartphone into the car and plugging it into the, um, into the speaker system. Um, but the car is really the last bastion where theater of the mind, audio media dominates. And it really only dominates with the driver. Because we're, not only, not only um, are we in radio um, threatened by the loss of audience when the car is no longer what it used to be, but it already is happening in as much as it is no longer considered customary for more than one person to listen to the radio or to a speaker at a time. It's considered rude to impose upon another person or a carload of people or people at the beach or people on the train or wherever you may be to have to listen to what you're listening to, hence the um, explosion in the use of earbuds. Uh, radio is now a private listening experience as opposed to truly a group listening experience or a public one. If you're driving in your car and you happen to be the driver, the odds are you're the only one who'll want to listen to the radio. The kids in the backseat are, are watching video on their computers or um, on the big screen if it's a, a you know a minivan and, and, and it has its own TV unit in there. And quite often the person next to you may not be happy with what you've got on the radio and they'll be listening to their earbuds instead. So uh, the, the car is no longer that custom wonderful audio listening chamber, you know, radio listening chamber of the car. So radio faces problems with the future of the car no matter how you slice it, self-driving car or not. And yet one of the things that's so interesting, and there have been some psychological studies on this, is that when you're listening even to radio, even to talk radio, spoken word radio, through earbuds, there, there's a more personal, more intimate experience. There's some, there's some added value sometimes that comes out of that. Well, it, it definitely is a psychological change, and I think with that there is an added value. But, but it's also, it's changed the nature of the programming. When I was growing up, radio was one to many. So, you know, you're listening to the Tower of Power broadcasting all over the greater New York metropolitan area. This is, ladies and gentlemen, you know, this larger-than-life, monstrous 50,000-watt blowtorch coming down from up top of Mount Everest and covering the land. That's the way radio sounded. Big voices, you know, bum, 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 and, and all that. that. That sounds ridiculous today. When I do any kind of radio show uh, and where I'm talking, where I'm the host or I'm doing a podcast, I imagine I'm only talking to one person because that's really what I am doing. You're talking to one person and you're not going to talk to one person by going, welcome to the show. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, you're just not going to do that. Uh, so the whole nature of radio programming has gone from one to many to one to one. And it's interesting to see, particularly among hosts that have been doing this for a long time, how they have adapted, how the industry has adapted to those fundamental changes. Well, the industry has to adapt, and those hosts that haven't adapted uh, sound passe. Uh, there are uh, many hosts from the old days mm -hmm. who were gigantic and big-time stars in their time. Others have, have been able to move along with the times and uh, have survived. But you have to change because uh, things change gradually and sometimes they change quickly, but one thing is for sure, they change. And people even speak with different accents from decade to decade. You could tell listening to recordings of people 
hmm, that's 1930s. You know, hey, see, here, you know, what do you say? Uh, uh, 1940s had a way of talking. The 50s had a sound. If you watch movies, you go, my gosh, they're talking in 50s-es. You know, the 60s had a sound. Hey, man, you know, like, uh, you know, every decade has its own accent, let alone its own words, its own lingo, and its own attitude. It's going to be interesting to see getting back to, to the whole symbiotic relationship between Fox and conservative talk radio, how as Fox transitions now, and certainly a lot of changes are taking place there, a lot of changes are going to continue to take place there for a while, how that's going to impact talk radio and, and vice versa. Well, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact on talk radio other than Fox may lose its grip on that aspect of the culture. I think that uh, Fox will break down into uh, several channels uh, that will rise up and gobble up the large audience that was uh, very loyal to Fox. Uh, because radio, uh, television and radio, uh, talk media is very talent-driven, and the loss of some of these talents, uh, O'Reilly, uh, the loss of Ailes, uh, the loss of uh, Megyn Kelly, a rising star, uh, the changes that have happened there, uh, will have an impact. It's not just that they're conservative, it's that they were conservative with a personality. And... Um, uh, even Hannity has been going through uh, trial and error, uh, ex- you know, ex- exercises in how he presents himself during this time of transition. I I think that um, it'll open up opportunities for other television entities to reflect the conservative point of view. And I think the talk radio has got to stop being so enamored by television and realize that it's just another competing channel. You know, I, we're entering the age of the media station. We have, we have channels on newspaper websites. Everybody's right. in the radio and television business nowadays. Y- you don't have to have a license, an antenna, or be a television station or a radio station to be in radio and television. And, of course, podcasts are everywhere, whether it's the New York Times or Politico, which is filled with them. I mean, it's all a form of spoken word radio. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, the only people that really, really have a vested interest in the future of what we call in this business the stick, meaning the old traditional transmitter attached to a antenna on a tower and licensed to be on AM or FM by the government, are people who own these stations. If you don't own these stations, there really is, unless you have a good job at one of them, there's little... Um, uh, reason not to go beyond the stick in order to get your message out and or to create a viable uh, form of income in the business of broadcasting. One of the things that has certainly been so interesting in all of this is the way that, that conservative talk radio has influenced and been influenced by the politics of our time. And it's going to be interesting to see how that reflects itself in radio, given the period of time, the political time that we're going through now, because this is is a unique time. Yeah, it is, but I don't think it's just conservative. I, I, I think that um, anywhere there is a, a hunger and a need, a vacuum, for galvanizing a, um, a, a school of thought that is not being expressed or uh, served in the media, there's opportunity. Uh, it's not just in politics, it's in sports, it's not just in sports, it's in music. 
Um, if there's a kind of music that's not getting played and then a station comes along and plays it and there's a huge audience out there that wants it, all of a sudden the ratings will go up. I remember one radio station back in the late 70s went from nowhere to an eight share in New York City in one book because they were playing disco at the height of the disco craze. It only lasted about six months, but <laughs> it, it, there was a hunger for that kind of music. I, I started my career in a big way by playing progressive album rock on FM underground stations because the AM Top 40s we're playing the edited versions of songs like Light My Fire. Uh, we played the unedited versions for the hippies, and we gathered huge audiences. Um, right now, with there being a passionate resistance movement and a galvanized uh, coming together of many, many different disparate sections of our society in um, repulsion to the Trump administration, I think that there's opportunity now for progressive talk radio to, to suddenly be successful. There's nothing inherent about radio and politics that makes it only good for conservatives. It has to do with the nature of the times and the circumstances of the times. So I think that uh, going forward, uh, there'll always be a reason to have conservative media because there'll always be conservatives. But I think that right now there's great opportunity for liberal media to serve the impassioned, uh, aroused, uh, and concerned segment of the public that now uh, hungers to be served uh, by uh, those who are talking to them about how they feel. Certainly the ratings of MSNBC of late would support exactly what you're saying. Yeah, and I was saying it before that happened. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, when people say liberal radio doesn't work, well, that's because that was then, but this is now. Um, <laughs> I remember when there were radio stations that wouldn't play the Beatles because why would anybody play British rock and roll when America is the place where the great rock and roll comes from? That The first time I heard the Beatles on the radio, the DJ introduced, it as an, introduced I Want to Hold Your Hand as a novel record a novelty record so yeah, you cannot judge future moods and trends by the past you know it sounds like those uh, disclaimers for um, investment firms right. you know you know past performance doesn't guarantee future you know, <laughs> you know future results um, you can't you, you cannot stand still you have to seek opportunity and as I said they'll always be conservative there'll always be a market for conservative media there always has been but uh, right now, if I were um, putting together a business just for the sake of that, in other words, creating a radio network or a television network or radio show for the sake of going where there's a vacuum and where there's an audience, I would go the progressive route. Least we not forget that the biggest star in cable right now started on Air America, Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow is now the biggest star. They used to make fun of her. But um, even, just to show you the power of talk radio, everybody talks about Air America as being a failure, and yet it's, it, people don't realize that Air America spawned Al Franken's political career. Right. Al Franken was, a, was an author and a fading comedian, a fading comedian who wrote a couple of books. And then he went on uh, Air America, and the next thing you know, he's a United States senator. Do you think that Al Franken would not be, you think that he would have been a senator if he had not been on Air America back when Air America was out there? I don't think so. Again, you know, we've talked about, and we're just about out of time, but we've talked about this nexus between television and radio. Also, the nexus between radio and politics, whether it's Al Franken or, or Mike Pence, who had a radio show after he lost a congressional election back in Indiana. 
Yeah, Mike Pence was a tel- was a uh, was a radio talk show host, and right. and, and not a bad one. Uh, so yeah, there there is that connection. Um, usually, politicians don't make good radio talk show hosts because they're too measured. They're too they 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 they, they don't um, they're not authentic. They don't reveal themselves. But there have been cases where it's worked, and and Mike Pence seems to be very savvy about how to handle himself in all situations. Um, uh, you may not agree with his politics, but he um, he conducts himself in a very dignified way, and he knows just what to say uh, when he's on the spot. Talkers, Talkers.com, Michael Harrison, I thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you and keep up the good work on a really great platform you're developing there. Thank you.